My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with David Lester. Who better to illustrate a graphical account of one of Canada's most important radical uprisings than someone with his own lifetime commitment to bringing together art in both its graphical and musical forms and radical politics? The book in question is 1919, A Graphic History of the Winnipeg General Strike from Between the Lines Press. This year marks a century since more than 30,000 workers in Winnipeg set down their tools and took to the streets for over six weeks. Part of the wave of radical mass actions that swept across the world during the years after the First World War, it inspired sympathy strikes in cities across the country and made Canadian elites fear that revolution was coming. While it was ultimately crushed by state and vigilante violence that happened in tight collusion with business elites, it has remained a touchstone for Canadian radicals ever since. And 1919 brings that history to a new generation. One side of the collaboration that produced the book is the Graphic History Collective, a grouping of scholars, artists, educators, and writers that for over a decade have been making graphic novel-style books and radical posters to present rigorously researched histories of struggles for justice in engaging, accessible, and entertaining ways. The other side of the collaboration is the aforementioned radical artist and musician, David Lester. His father was a postal worker during the years of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers' Greatest Militants. His older brother was a 1960s radical who, while Lester was growing up, exposed him to all manner of cutting-edge politics, books, and music. And, though he only found this out later, he even had a grandfather who belonged to the fabled industrial workers of the world in the 1910s and who took part in a famous labor battle in Vancouver in the 1930s. As a youth in 1970s Vancouver, he contributed regularly to student publications throughout the city and had a regular column in a U.S.-based youth liberation magazine. After high school, he joined the collective that published longtime anti-authoritarian newspaper Open Road. He was constantly designing posters and brochures and leaflets for grassroots groups. And through all of this, he was playing politically inflected music as well. In 1984, he and collaborator Gene Smith formed rock duo Mecca Normal with, as they say on their website, the express purpose of changing the world. Smith's political, often militantly feminist lyrics combined with Lester's distinctive guitar work to carve out a unique space in the independent music scene. Their work has influenced generations of musicians, perhaps most notably some of the founders of the feminist social movement known as Riot Girl that emerged in the 1990s. They still perform regularly today and find that even their classic tracks from three decades ago resonate with audiences, and not because of nostalgia, but because they speak to issues that are still very much current. A new Mecca Normal album based on live recordings done at the CBC 23 years ago is set to be released later in the year. Lester has also continued to use his graphical and writing skills to convey radical messages. 
In 2005, he published a graphically innovative book built from statistics about the injustices of our economic system called The Gruesome Acts of Capitalism. That's from Arbeiter Ring Press in Winnipeg. His first graphic novel, The Listener, was published in 2011, also by Arbeiter Ring. And he has contributed chapters to two other graphic history collective projects, including the newly released Direct Action Gets the Goods, A Graphic History of the Strike in Canada, published by Between the Lines in 2019. He's hard at work on a graphic history that will explore the final year in the life of anarchist revolutionary Emma Goldman, which she spent living in Toronto. I speak with Lester about the power of combining radical politics with art and with music, and about 1919, a graphic history of the Winnipeg General Strike. My name is David Lester. I'm a graphic artist and musician in Vancouver. Grew up in Vancouver in a working class family, and my father was a postal worker all his life, so he was in Cup W. And I vividly remember the tumultuous strikes of the 1970s, where he would be, it seemed like, constantly going off to the picket line. Going back even further to my grandfather, he was a member of the Industrial Workers of the World around the 1912 to 1919 era. But I never discovered that until much later. And I had an older brother, about nine years older, who was a 60s radical, and he worked at the underground newspaper Georgia Strait in Vancouver. And for one thing, he maintained what to me was a massive library in our house of all kinds of political histories and fiction and the beats and works of socialism and anarchism. So I got to access to all of that as a teenager. And it did influence me greatly, as well as his record collection, which included folk artists like Phil Oakes and Tom Paxton and Buffy St. Marie, etc. And they kind of introduced me to the idea of combining art and politics. I really learned about history and politics through these songs, these three-minute songs. And that has propelled the direction of my entire life, was going back to how mixing art and politics, how profound that can be. As well, because my brother worked at the local underground newspaper, he would bring in newspapers from across North America. And that, again, interested me in doing graphic design, particularly newspapers and posters. So even at an early age, politics ran through my existence. I would create my own kind of books, which would now be called zines. I would draw and write things that interested me, and particularly political stuff. As a teenager, I also started to draw a monthly column for a youth liberation magazine out of Michigan called FPS. I wrote to them one day and I sent my artwork in and I suggested doing a column on students and education and they thought that was a great idea. And I did that for almost three years. You know, I would do the artwork and send it off every month. As well, I contributed to student publications in Vancouver. So I was actively involved in combining art and politics at that moment. And then when I graduated from high school, I immediately joined the international anti-authoritarian newspaper collective Open Road that was producing this great publication out of Vancouver that was really uh, anti-authoritarian anarchist type of publication. I joined the collective and I started to do the design for it as well as many of the center posters of it. And one of those included a big, beautiful, colorful one of Emma Goldman. People would tell me they would see it all over Europe and North America. Another influence of a book was the autobiography of Emma Goldman, Living My Life. That has had a profound effect on how I ended up doing all the things that I've done and what motivated me to do them. 
I went to a lot of punk rock shows at the time, and I started to do graphics for punk band DOA. And also I did hundreds of posters and leaflets and brochures for local community groups on a variety of topics, including, you know, Latin America liberation movements and Irish hunger strikers and, you know, other, other a solitary confinement abolition project was another one that I worked on. And that was all at the same time as I was doing cartoons and also playing in a band locally. We put out a single, which was about a standoff between prisoners and guards and police at the local penitentiary, and it became our first single. So it was basically a documentary of what occurred, very much in the tradition of topical songs that had come out of the 60s. We also, as a band, did a lot of benefits, and that was primarily the focus of the group. So it was entirely based around one's progressive political beliefs and entwining that with art, graphic design, and music. This is around the period of 1979 to 83, or around that time. And I also ended up going to England and squatting in London and living that life for a bit and doing cartoons for all the radical publications in the city for a period of time there. One of your most enduring and best-known projects has been the rock duo Mecca Normal. Tell me about how you came together, about the music, about the politics. Mecca Normal formed in 1984. It consists of me on guitar and Gene Smith on lyrics and vocals. We had met as friends at a local newspaper in the production department, and we started to go to a lot of hardcore punk shows at that time. But what we would see is four guys on stage all the time. It was always these four guys on stage thing. And we thought, well, where's the other 50% of the population? And so I wanted to form a radical duo where you just had a crazy punk guitar and wild singing and great lyrics. Gene was totally into that, and so we decided to form this group together called Mecha Normal as a reaction to what we saw around us. So the origins of it are definitely political, and we thought we would change the world with our particular brand of punk. That was the origins of it. So we wrote all these songs, and Gene, with a particular focus on feminism, and other songs were about, you know, the white male domination in society, and the state of poverty, and other social issues. And so those were the content of the songs, very much what was going on and what we saw around us. In 1986, we ended up recording these songs ourselves and putting out our own album. And again, all part of the DIY movement that would gain traction in the 90s. And so this was in the mid-80s. And then we just went out and started playing shows and met a record label in Washington State called K Records. And they were into, you know, bucking the corporate notion of how music should be presented as product, etc. And so it all fit in terms of trying to make music and the content of your music and the means of production of the music and working with like-minded people in order to create a community which existed at the time. In Olympia, Washington, the indie music community was very strong. We found that our performances there had an influence on some of the founders of the feminist social movement known as Riot Girl. So we feel in a way, in our own small way, that we helped to you know, change the world to a degree because we saw this flowering of an actual social movement that still has reverberations today. So we put out lots of albums and we played, you know, benefits and we traveled around the world and we are still actively working as a band, even 35 years later. And we find that our songs are still relevant today. There's a band in England that plays one of our songs. The idea that our songs, you know, somebody can play it 35 years later and it's still relevant, unfortunately, is still relevant, is very gratifying and also depressing at the same time. 
we've found that when we play our songs, that they resonate rather than as a sense of nostalgia or, oh, I really enjoyed your band at that time. It's the relevance of them that resonates with people. We have a new album coming out this year, which is actually an old album. It's 23 years old, but it's a live album recorded by the CBC for Brave New Waves. So this live album contains some of our key songs like I Walk Alone, Strong White Male, and Man Thinks Woman, and Are You Hungry Joe? I'm so excited about it because I feel like the performance is incendiary. It's absolutely red hot, and that's to be released in late March of 2019. And so, you know, Mechanormal continues on, and we play shows, and we're writing songs, and there's no reason to stop making music if you're politically committed to what you're doing and to us. Very gratifying if it can connect with people in a progressive way. And in terms of your work combining visual art and radical politics, I want to hear lots more about the new book you have out with the Graphic History Collective, 1919, A Graphic History of the Winnipeg General Strike. But before that, tell me just briefly about some of the earlier book projects you've been a part of over the years. The first book I did in 2005 was The Gruesome Acts of Capitalism, which was a compendium of facts about how grotesque capitalism is by using comparative numbers, and also I inserted illustrations in too. And that was very successful in terms of it was used in courses to teach literature as well, because I tried to play with the form of a book and what defined a book. And so to a certain extent, it was a series of stats, but it was also how I designed the book in order to make it easy to look at and to create it almost like it's a poetry book, because these stats are, in my view, so profoundly revelatory that it's like it's more than just a statistic. I donated all the royalties to the Canadian Centre for the Victims of Torture. My first graphic novel was called The Listener, and that came out in 2011. It was about the last democratic election to take place in Germany before Hitler was named chancellor. In it, my thesis is really that it could have all been otherwise, and it was a series of circumstances that led to this decision and how important a small regional election was to the rise of Hitler. It may have all turned out the same, but it's worth noting that every little bit of politics does matter. And that came out on Arbeiter Ring Publishing out of Winnipeg. It's been promoted as a key tool in trying to teach social justice. So I'm very happy about that. And then I also did a chapter in the second book of the Graphic History Collective called Drawn to Change, Graphic Histories of Working Class Struggles. My chapter was on the Battle of Ballantine Pier, which occurred in Vancouver in 1935 on the waterfront here. I chose that one because my grandfather was actually at the Battle of Ballantine Pier he was a member of the Longshoremen's Union at the time. And so I wrote it from a personal perspective, wrote history from a personal perspective. And that was my first connection with the Graphic History Collective and have since designed a poster of Emma Goldman in their poster series, plus the two recent books. And how did you get involved in the 1919 project? I got involved with 1919 because I'd done a chapter in a Drawn to Change book, and I'd also done a poster for them. I then illustrated a chapter in the other book that they did, which is uh, Direct Action Gets the Goods, a graphic history of the strike in Canada. I'm kind of the 1920s, 1930s part of that book. The early 20th century to 1930, around that era. So we touch on the killing of Ginger Goodwin, the Winnipeg General Strike, and the attack on the onto Ottawa Trek in Saskatchewan. And because of how I drew that chapter in Direct Action Gets the Goods, they wrote to me to say, well, you know, you would be ideal to do this entire book. 
And I was thrilled to be asked to do that. And I jumped at it right away as like, yeah, of course. Yeah, that, that's right up my alley. I would love to do that. For listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the history, give a bare-bones account of what happened during the Winnipeg General Strike. The Winnipeg General Strike took place in May and June of 1919. It lasted about six weeks, and more than 30,000 workers, and those were union members and non-union members, walked off the job in Winnipeg, Manitoba. They struck for a variety of reasons, higher wages, but particularly collective bargaining rights, and in general, working conditions and more power for working people. At the time, there was a lot of sense of revolution in the air in terms of the world. You had the Russian Revolution in 1917. You had a general strike in Vancouver around that time. You had a general strike in Seattle. And I think there might have been one in San Francisco. And so the sense of working people rising up was definitely part of the lexicon of what was going on at that time. And in general, I think workers were provoked by the inequalities of industrial capitalism. And in this particular case of the brutal experiences of coming out of World War I, workers were not in a good mood. You know, there were rising prices for living and stagnating wages. And so this was all perhaps a perfect storm for going on a general strike. As I said, it lasted for about six weeks, and it ultimately ended in defeat. The strike was violently crushed by police in collusion with the government, uh, local and federal. As well, there was a strong contingent of right-wing vigilantes who were involved in suppressing the strike. So I think the theme that comes out of 1919, uh, the book, is one of collective action and a notion of solidarity. And in particular, in the 1919 strike, Winnipeg General Strike, you saw a great deal of solidarity among workers, union and non-union, as I said, and their families and supporters and people of various political stripes as well. And so the idea with the book, I think, is to try to tell new generations the power of collective action. And it's great when people do individual actions. It can be very powerful and important. But ultimately, to transform society in any kind of a profound way would be to join together in solidarity and use your power collectively. And I think that in general, I think the Graphic History Collective is trying to put that forward to instill that idea as a tool that we all have in society if we want to change things. So if there was a theme and a message to 1919, it would be working together and solidarity and acting collectively. Beyond this specific project, why is it important to you to be delving into these histories of struggle and to be finding ways to present them that are more accessible and engaging than, say, uh, an academic monograph might be? I think it's vital that progressive people offer their narrative to history at this point, because we know that the right wing, the anti-democratic forces, the despots and racists often crave legitimacy through history, witness the monuments to the Confederacy and the American South. So I feel like what having academics and artists working together to give context to history and politics is essential in a world where discourse and information is increasingly dominated by opinion. The crucial value of a book like 1919 is that its academic rigor leads legitimacy to its content. And even though comics are still considered lowbrow, they have the power to communicate in ways that traditional history books do not. And comics remove barriers from potential readers who find politics or history boring or intimidating. And in the case of wordless comics, readers of all backgrounds, education and language can engage with a comic. 
I just did an event at a teacher's conference, a history teacher's conference, and they were telling me that they find that high school students now, many of them are unable to read long-form texts like books. And so what the Graphic History Collective is doing with making history comics is essential to their work in education in the classroom. The students, because they see an example of what, say, 1919 or Drawn to Change is, they see an example how comics can tell history. And so then they say, well, here's a project. You have to create your own graphic novel. And within that, it isn't about drawing at all. That's really meaningless. But it is about how you present ideas and the text with the visuals, even if you're doing stick drawings. You have to work all of those and think critically how you handle the presentation of that, which I think requires a far deeper thinking process than simply absorbing a book, because you have to now define it all and redefine it all, I should say. So what the Graphic History Collective offers is a way forward for activist art, because clearly there's a need for this, and clearly teachers are saying there's a need for it, as we see technology changing how people are relating to the printed word using comics in this way that has obviously got to be the way forward in terms of presenting radical history and politics in an engaging way. As someone who has been making political music and political art for a long time now, what's your sense about how that kind of work in general has changed and how the environment for doing that work has changed over the time since you started doing it? I think the mixing of art and politics that ebbs and flows in terms of its fashion or popularity at any given period of time. For what I'm doing, I just can't think of it any other way. I will not be defined by whatever is currently fashionable or somehow, you know, politically relevant stuff is fashionable now and then it goes through a phase of it's not that way. I think as an activist, you have to be consistent and you just have to, you know, carry on is what you have to do. When I was starting out, I was listening to things that were already old-fashioned, like songs from the civil rights movement and the topical songs of the early uh, mid-60s in folk music. That was all passe by the time I started to get interested in it. And then punk came along, which was heavily political for a lot of bands, not all. And that went through its own phase and dissipated. And then there was a new wave of women making political music and feminist music. And that ebbs and flows as well. But it's always there in some form. It's just a question of whether the media picks up on it or it has any kind of high-profile fashionableness to it in terms of the public. But it never goes away. And in terms of how it's done, you find that people rediscover work. As I was saying, you know, a band of young people today discovering Mechanormal and playing our song. And you go, well, why would they do that? But clearly it resonates in some way and it shows the timelessness of it. So I'm feeling that people are always open to political art and music. It's just that it doesn't always get the play that it should at any particular time. Technology may change, but the beliefs and the ideals that are connected to it, they remain consistent. And when you create political art, political music, and send it out into the world, what kinds of impacts do you hope that it has? The power of art is immense. Art can instigate debate. It can aid the momentum of social change. And when I've done posters, it's been part of often a campaign of activity with a social movement and the same with songs. And so art can also, in all its form, I'm referring to it. So it could be art, it could be music, posters, graphic design, it could be newspaper design for that matter. Art can offer hope and art can challenge our ideas of life. 
And importantly, art can let us know we're not alone. And that's particularly important in social struggles where people feel like this is a daunting task. This strike is going on forever. This campaign will never see results. And we have to know art can definitely show solidarity and show that we're not alone. And art can be challenging and subversive, which is important. And art can articulate our collective emotions felt in a time of conflict and tragedy and rage and crisis. And that's invaluable as well. And it can be in any form in terms of how the art is out there. It can be a performance. And finally, art can bear witness to the world that we live in. And that's perhaps the greatest thing art can do that encompasses all the things I've just said. I don't think it gets much better than that in terms of what it can accomplish and how it can work with other people who are not artists, who are just people doing their activism or living their lives in a way where they're trying to be decent people and humanitarians and honorable people. So to have art also in solidarity be there as well, all the work that I do, I hope that it has that effect. And that's what motivates me to do any of what I've done. What are you working on at the moment? I have a long-term project on the last year in the life of the social revolutionary and anarchist Emma Goldman. She lived the last year of her life in Toronto, where she died in 1940. There's already a book that exists on her entire life, a graphic novel. That's great. But my focus is on that last year. And really to think, how did she manage to be an activist for 50 years? How did she manage that despite the harassment from the public and the vilification in the press and harassment from police and arrests and trials and prison and deportation and exile across Europe? How did she maintain her ideals? How did she do that? And I know from reading her letters that, you know, she questioned, was it all worth it? When you live a life that long, 50 years of activism, and you don't see any sign that your ideals are going to be realized, was it all worth it? I try to answer those questions in my book, and I try to deal with the pathos and the human emotion that's involved in those questions and that realization that you're coming to the end of your life. She lived up to the last minute as an activist fighting to save a man's life in Toronto from being deported to fascist Italy. And at the same time, you've worked to make a more equitable world. And yet, after 50 years, you see the world engulfed in fascism in Spain and Italy and Germany, and you see the world on the verge of world war. And you think, my God, I have achieved nothing. You know, this is where we're at. It's not unsimilar to what we see right now, where the drift to the far right and the rise of authoritarianism and fascistic ideas across the world. People have worked so hard to try to build a better world, and this is where we've ended up. So I think that my book is an attempt to try to navigate through that emotional world. So it's a very personal portrait of her based on her letters and the people she knew in Toronto at the time. The other project I have is a book about the radical Quaker and anti-slavery activist Benjamin Lay, who was active in the 18th century, way before what we think of as the anti-slavery movement, which we associate with William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass and John Brown, etc. He was way before all of those people. One thing that was unique about him was that he carried out what we would now call guerrilla theater. But he's been lost to history for the most part because he was also a dwarf and he was kind of marginalized by that physicality. He's a quite remarkable radical. And so I'm in the process of doing a book about him as well. You have been listening to my interview with radical musician and artist David Lester. 
To learn more about all of the projects we've been discussing, go to davidlesterartmusicdesign.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 